This morning you'll want to open up your Bible to the book of Judges, which is after the books of Deuteronomy and Joshua. And we'll be reading a fairly lengthy passage from Judges chapter 11. And, um, but before we do that, let us go once again to the Lord our God in prayer. Good and gracious Father, we thank you that we have your word with us this morning, a word that testifies of Christ. Please, Lord, bless its reading and solidify our understanding. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. And because of how long chapter uh, 11 of Judges is, we're going to skip over a few verses during the public reading, but I'm confident that the verses we um, are going to skip over, that I'll be able to preserve the heart of this chapter and the heart of the message and summarize them quicker later on. Now, Judges covers about 300 years of Israeli history. The first verse of the book actually begins with the death of Joshua. He is now dead, this great servant of the Lord who brought them into the Holy Land. And so there's this power vacuum that arises. And the book of Judges really deals with that power vacuum. It never gets filled during this 300-year period. And the final verse of Judges actually summarizes the dilemma well when it says, In those days, so in the days of Judges, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So there's a lot of unfaithfulness in the pages of Judges. And God throughout this period will empower both men and women uh, for a time who would break the oppression the unfaithfulness and the bondage of Israel, giving them momentary freedom and rest before the cycle of sin would repeat itself. But why did I pick Judges chapter 11? We are here because of Pastor Tim's series through the book of Hebrews. See, when we get to Hebrews chapter 11, it is often referred to as the Hall of Faith chapter. Sports leagues have Hall of Fames, Uh, We as Christians have the Hall of Faith in chapter 11 of Hebrews. And when uh, Pastor Tim gets to Hebrews 11, we're going to appreciate several of the names listed in that Hall of Faith. Names like Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, David, Samuel, Barak, Rahab, Gideon, and all the prophets. But there is one name mentioned in Hebrews 11.32, that I have not yet said, and that name is Jephthah. And if I'm being honest, it's a name that at first seems out of place for many, myself included. The elder brother in me doesn't want Jephthah to be in the hall of faith. The elder brother in me wants to say, surely the author could have done better than Jephthah. Why not mention Caleb, Joshua, Deborah, or others? But then I remember 2 Timothy 3.16. And that the author of Judges is not just Samuel. But all scripture has been breathed out by the Holy Spirit and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And then I cover my mouth before his word. And I begin to read with you Judges chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Now Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. 
Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. And worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, Come and be our leader, that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, This is why we have turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be the head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites and the Lord gives gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord will be a witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him the head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all the words before the Lord at Mitzvah. (laughs) Then Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said, What do you have against me, that you have come against me to fight against my land? And the king of the Ammonites answered the, the messengers of Jephthah, Because Israel, on coming up from Egypt, took away my land from the Arnah, to the Jabbok, and to the Jordan. Now, therefore, restore it peaceably. Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said to him, Thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites. Now we're going to jump ahead to Judges uh, verse 23. The Lord, the God of Israel, disposed the Amorites from before his people Israel. And are you to take possession of them? And we're going to jump one last time to verse 27. I therefore have not sinned against you, and you do me wrong by making war on me. The Lord, the judge, will decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Amnon. But the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he had sent him. Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mitzpah of Gilead. And from Mitzpah of Gilead he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give me the Ammonites, if you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's. And I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them. And the Lord gave them into his hand. And he struck them from Aor to the neighborhood of Mineth, 20 cities, as far as Abel-Kuramim, with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mitzpah, and his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, 
You have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth. Now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, but let this one thing be done for me. Leave me alone two months that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. So he said, go. Then he sent her away for two months, and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She never knew a man, and it became custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in a year. I often feel like Jonah overlooking the city of Nineveh when Jonah pled for its destruction as I read this text in Scripture about Jephthah. I feel like saying to God, why didn't you destroy this man? But I know Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32 says this man is saved. I know that Hebrews chapter 11, verse 34 says that God made Jephthah strong through his weakness. In this text, we have times where Jephthah seems clearly to be an enemy of God. But we have a God who loves his enemies and saves them, and that which includes you and me. Now, as for this passage, it really divides into three parts. In the first 11 verses of this passage, it serves to tell us much about, how, um, about rejects and grace. That there will be missteps by many, and yet there is also a significant amount of grace extended throughout it all. Then, between verses 12 through 33 of this text, we will see two ungodly turns. We will see the, see the mistake of ignoring God's truth, both for the believer and the unbeliever. And then the chapter closes with looking at the injustice of the virgin's door. How should we even begin to look at a text like that? And so, in moving into the text, during the previous chapter in Judges, chapter 10, Scripture tells us the Ammonite nation is about to, be attacked, about to attack Gilead. Um, it had already attacked other Israeli outposts. And so picture the Ammonite armies on one side encamped against Gilead and Gilead armies encamped on the other. And chapter 10 actually ends with a question. And the question is, who will lead this Gilead clan into battle? See, the Gileadites had previously cried out to the Lord in chapter 10, verse 10, repenting of their worship of pagan idols. But now the battle was imminent. They're beginning to doubt whether Yahweh will deliver them. They want insurance in case Yahweh will not come through. They could have reached out to the broader nation of Israel for support, but honestly, at the time of the judges, Israel is so divided that there is little respect between the tribes. Jephthah's own life will finish in chapter 12 with him fighting a small-scale civil war in Israel. I say small because a far larger one will happen later on in the book of Judges. So who will they look to? The irony of Israel is that while Yahweh had given them his assurance time and time again to hope in the Lord, they proved time and time again they have no interest in that kind of faith. 
So the leader they ultimately look to is Jephthah. And Jephthah is a noteworthy choice. While the text makes clear right away that he fights well, he's also a prostitute's son. While he's linked to Gilead by birth, his birth is because of marital infidelity. These are people under the fullness of God's law, the people of Gilead. They were not supposed to look to the law just for moral conduct, but they were to look to it for how to run their government. So they should have known that Deuteronomy 23, verse 2, makes clear that a child born to a prostitute is not to be welcomed into the community, let alone being the head of a clan. So while we know today that the true point of Deuteronomy 23, 2 is it wasn't to say that sons of prostitutes can't become the head of state or be in our community today, in their nation, according to the full force of the law in Deuteronomy, they are acting in sin in this moment. The people of Gilead are picking a guy not because he fits God's resume of who should be a leader by God's guidelines of who should be a leader, but they're actually disobeying their civil law in picking Jephthah. And as we continue on in these early verses of chapter 11, we learn Jephthah had previously been driven out of the community by Gilead's wife. Gilead's wife, reasonably, wasn't all that happy about raising a child sired through her husband's infidelity with a prostitute. And so Jephthah had been driven out of Gilead in verse 2, and he fled to the land of Tob. Tob means good, and so it's a good land. But the scholars debate on its exact location. We don't know where Tob exactly was, but notice the second half of verse 3. What did Jephthah do when he went to this land of Tob? He hung out with worthless fellows. I would suspect we've all had the experience in life when someone doesn't like a friend of ours or maybe a group of friends we have. But you know it's bad when the Holy Spirit calls all your friends worthless. And that gets written down in Scripture so that everybody knows they're worthless. Verse 3 seems to suggest that Jephthah is a magnet for worthless men. For some reason, he appeals to them. And this ever-growing worthless gang, led by Jephthah, venture out together. This growing posse was likely a mix of thieves and mercenaries. We're really not sure what they're doing. We're just sure that God says whatever they're doing, it was worthless. And he was not a fan of these worthless men. This is who the people of Gilead want to save them. This is their great insurance policy. And if God was a God of pure justice, if God dealt with his people according to the strict reading of the law and what it required, then the remainder of this chapter would sooner have the Ammonites wiping out Gilead with Jephthah at the helm. But that's not what God's going to do. The clan picked a man who is exactly what the law forbid. And this is who the people turned to, to be back, the Ammonites. I find 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 29 helpful in understanding this first part of Judges chapter 11. Paul writes the following, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast. 
and the presence of God. So was this selection of Jephthah by a strict reading of God's law a good choice as judge or as a leader? No, it was not. But the clear-cut demands of the full law, by those clear-cut demands of the full law, Jephthah was an awful choice. And that is great news for people like you and I. Because if God only chose worthy people, those who met his standard on their own merits, based on his law, we would all be damned. Not one of us. Not one of us can stand up to such scrutiny. Not one of us would ever be chosen by such a standard. Because left on our own, we don't have any righteousness. So the good news of the first 11 verses is this. God accepts rejects like Jephthah. God accepts rejects like the Gileadites. And if we look hard enough, God accepts rejects like you and me. Even though Jephthah didn't show promise, and the reason behind picking him was unbiblical, God shows us how his grace extends further for us than the law says is required of us. While the law says we deserve to be thrown into Gehenna, into the pit of hell, his gracious mercy says, not this one. I will save this one. The lives of us, the redeemed, are messy. There are missteps along the way which show that we deserve rejection. But God still has more than enough grace for people like you and me. So now then, as we move farther into the chapter, we have seen this great reversal of fortunes. This warrior Jephthah, the son of a harlot, who has been hanging out with worthless people, is the newly installed head of the Gilead clan. And right away we can see the subtle warning signs of greater problems to come. For instance, notice in verse 12, Jephthah gets mad at the Ammonites for coming against him and his land. Who is he glorifying in that moment? Also notice in verse 15, Jephthah is not saying, thus says the Lord. He says, thus says Jephthah. He invokes the power of his own name, not Yahweh's, before a pagan king. Though it's not all bad, there are instances in these verses I'm about to go over where Jephthah has these quick, admirable moments, but it's mixed in with subtle pride. Jephthah's diplomacy, for instance, is a sign of his decency. You would expect a man from his background to just launch into war. But he counts the cost of battle and tries to find a peaceful way forward. To explain politically what's going on in Judges 11, let me just use an example from U.S. history for a moment. So, right now, we stand in Nevada. We stand upon land that was received, the U.S. received, in the Mexican-American War of 170 years ago. In that war, the U.S. received all of California, all of Nevada, all of Utah, most of Arizona, parts of New Mexico, parts of Colorado, and parts of Wyoming. So, to understand what's going on right now for these people at Gilead, and by extension, Israel in Judges 11, imagine if 130 years from today, Canada attacked the United States in order to get back some of the land they lost in the Mexican-American War. What would be the problem? Canada didn't lose any land in the Mexican-American War. And so that's a little bit of what's going on here in this moment. So Jephthah's patience is inspiring. He's not making a rash decision for bloodshed. 
this mercenary uh, of sorts might have us presume he would just rush into battle, but he is thoughtfully trying to avoid conflict, and he's trying to avoid the loss of life. I mentioned earlier how Deuteronomy 23.2 excluded a leader who was born of a prostitute, and yet the Gileadites Gileadite still picked Jephthah nonetheless. Do you want to guess what the very next prohibition in Deuteronomy 23 verse 3 is? It's that no Ammonites could be found in the midst of the people of God. The Ammonite presence, in one sense, was like a bad serpent in a good garden. The judge, who in Deuteronomy 23.2 is excluded by the letter of the law, the judge that was shown grace, is trying to extend similar grace to a pagan Gentile nation. While the law gave Jephthah warrant to attack, he sent multiple messengers to try to avoid war. But we see in verse 28, the Ammonites make an ungodly turn. The Ammonite king ignores what he certainly knew was true. The land was not his. He had no legitimate claim on it. And he suppresses that truth and makes war upon God's chosen people. And when the Ammonites reject this mercy, the Spirit of the Lord then comes upon Jephthah in verse 29. And God empowers him to fight for the people. God is going to use Jephthah to crush the, foreign, the head of the foreign invader. But then we have a second ungodly turn in this chapter. In verses 30 to 31, Jephthah makes a wicked vow. A vow he didn't have to make. A vow that was not of God. Actually, it's the kind of vow that one of those worthless fellows from the land of Tob would have been willing to probably make. Because so many clans, tribes, and nations in this region of the world during this particular time practiced human sacrifice. And if you look in the Hebrew of this text, the recklessness of the vow becomes even more clear. There is a way in the Hebrew, Jephthah could have stated the vow where what would be sacrificed as a burnt offering would have only included animals. But Jephthah, now the head of a clan with great blessings, phrases his vow in a way that implies human sacrifice. Also notice that Jephthah says house. This is no manger or barn being referred to where animals live. This is a home. So whatever comes out of a home, Jephthah says, he will provide as a burnt offering to God. Jephthah is committing a sin in this instance that's more common to mankind than we like to admit He's trying to buy God's favor, which is a great insult to a sovereign God. Trying to buy from God is salvation our God has already promised to provide. Jephthah's entire story so far should have served to testify of God's grace, of God's redeeming power and how it is not for sale that our Lord and our God is a God of grace and a God who will honor his promises and be merciful. But Jephthah misses this most critical point, and in missing the point that the work of salvation is all of God and that no human sacrifice by the hand of Jephthah is needed, it will ultimately lead into tragedy. In the middle part of this chapter, Jephthah proves he knows a lot about history, and he has a lot of patience with the Ammonite king. But what Jephthah doesn't know well enough is the king in heaven that he serves, the great I Am. Jephthah's lack of faith in God, the lack of belief that God would help him without any offering by his own hands, 
is a cautionary tale for all of us. During those moments where we try to bargain with God through our own works, whenever any of us move away from God's economy of grace and pervert it to us needing to earn God's favor by our own works, sin draws near, crouching at the door when we have that kind of theology. So God will deliver his people in Judges 11. He will crash the Ammonites' head, and Jephthah will be a part of that victory. But as we see in this section, whether you are in utter rejection to God's word, like the Ammonites, or under his protective power, like Jephthah, there are painful consequences that await us when we distort the Lord's message and, and how we are to worship him. We believers need to be always mindful on whether we are serving God in a grace-based economy or we are trying to earn God's favor. If we lose who our God is, when we forget the foundation of our deliverance and that that foundation is our saving God, we are in trouble. And now we shift to verse 34 to begin looking at the virgin who comes through the door and to see the sacrifice. Jephthah's sinful vow will require. While we have what is a successful judge returning home, we begin one of the darkest sections in all of Scripture. There's a vocal minority of theologians who try to bend this text every which way to try to make the text say something else, anything else. They want this burnt offering sacrifice to be a spiritualized fulfillment. But I am not flexible enough to bend the text like that. What's about to go on here is both awful and tragic. Jephthah returns home, and he's greeted by what should be the sweetest sight in the entire world for him. His one daughter, his only daughter, his only child has come out to meet him in joy, to celebrate the victory of her dad. She's holding tambourines and singing him songs, dancing in joyous celebration for the father she loves. And Jephthah rips his clothes in verse 35, and listen what he says to his daughter. He blames her. He, this mighty warrior, can't muster the courage to blame himself. He says, alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. You have become the cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. Jephthah, in this moment, is the very worst kind of father, blaming the love and joy of his younger daughter for his own sinful ignorance of who the true and living God is. While Jephthah showed earlier a good understanding of Israel's history with the Ammonites, he clearly did not know the law of God. Because if he had, he would have known that Leviticus 5 Verses 4 through 6 states that if anyone utters with his lips a rash vow to do evil and he realizes his guilt and confesses his sin he has committed, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation a lamb or a goat for a sin offering that the priest shall make atonement for his sin. All Jephthah had to do was have the wisdom to know Yahweh was good and he did not want his judge to carry out an evil oath. But there are more verses that acquit this girl of what her dad will do. For example, Leviticus 27, 2 through 4, which tells us that if Jephthah didn't want to sacrifice a goat, God's law had a second way to get out of an ungodly oath. He could have given th instead 30 shekels for his daughter's life, 
which the head of Gilead enjoying the spoils of war most certainly had. All godly leaders, at least then, even if he didn't know that he could give 30 shekels or a goat to spare his daughter's life, he surely, all leaders should have known Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 31, because the book of Deuteronomy actually served as a constitution of sorts for Israel. And in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 31, Our Lord declares that he does not want the Israelites to be like the nations surrounding them, those worthless fellows, sacrificing their sons and their daughters. Deuteronomy 12.31 says that it would be an abomination before God to make such an offering and that he wanted no such worship. So Jephthah's ignorance of the law of God and how to worship God in a way that is pleasing to him is going to cost him dearly. This isn't some case of the God of the Old Testament being a bully, as many unbelievers and critics often suggest. No, this is a case of a prostitute's son, a former mercenary, being made graciously a judge, being made a leader of a major clan in Israel, and yet being woefully ignorant of how God would have him live in the light of that leadership. What should have been a scene of a Daughter and a dad dancing over the Lord's salvation becomes a cautionary tale of all cautionary tales for biblical ignorance. The narrative then shifts to the daughter. This brave virgin who had kept her bodily purity and will, she will submit herself to a punishment she does not deserve. She asks her father for one last request, that he might give her two months which she could dedicate herself to prayer and mourning. And Jephthah agrees to give her this one grace. And while this daughter of Jephthah would be perfectly reasonable to use the two months as a head start to run away, the text makes clear in verse 39, she returns after two months to her father, and her father did with her according to the pagan vow that he had made. So we're back at the beginning. What are we to do with Jephthah? A man listed in Hebrews in the Hall of Faith. While politically he showed much restraint for bloodshed, and while he knew much about the history of Israel, and while on the battlefield he showed much heroism and valor and courage, his ignorance of the Word of God and what God asks of us cost him dearly. On May 21st, 2008, the family of Grammy-winning Christian singer Stephen Chapman were at home celebrating three events. They were celebrating a birthday, they were celebrating a graduation, and celebrating an engagement of one of the children. But the celebration would all come to an end when their son, Will, arrived home to join the rest of the family. Because unknown to Will was that his four-year-old sister was running towards his car as he parked. Maria, age four, was run over by his car. And all of a sudden, what was to be this wonderful moment became a terrible tragedy. After the helicopter arrived to take Maria to the hospital, trying to save a life that would ultimately pass on in death, the father Stephen and his wife Mary Beth got into the car to go to the dying daughter. But as the father began to leave, he caught sight of his son Caleb, now hugging the troubled Will who had run over Maria. And as the father glanced at this scene of his two boys, he stopped the car in order to yell to his son, 
Will Franklin, I want you to know your father loves you. We have finished reading one of the Bible's great tragedies. And yet God gives us scripture to testify of his great love for us. Our Father in heaven truly loves us. See, we too, along with Jephthah, have had moments of deep depravity. Yet, if we are the fathers this morning, he calls out to us in love. We come here week after week to glance a little farther, to see a little more deeply into the heavenly things, into the glory of God. And when we do that, we better understand not only how God can save someone like Jephthah, but we learn how God can save someone like you and me. Our God made a promise to all his people back when our first parents sinned in the garden. And his promise that was that he would crush evil's head and death and the death that came along with that evil. Our father loved the world and wanted to see it made right even though the world did not merit such love. Our father longed for it to be purified of sin and in order to accomplish this, the father gave his one and only son so that all who believe upon him might have new life. That son, our Lord Jesus Christ, left his heavenly home. Knowing what it would cost to save us, Christ knew that in taking on a body, there would be an undeserved wrath and judgment required. As he walked through that doorway of taking on flesh, Christ submitted to it all and was made an offering for our sake. That son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, submitted to this fate in order to save us and to do the will of the Father who sent him so that we sinners might know of the great love our Father in heaven has for us. The Son of God walked through the door, taking on flesh, living the life we could not live, and bearing the punishment our sins deserve, and now he reigns enthroned in heaven. We have much reason for joyful song this morning, for dancing, and for celebration on this Lord's Day. Children of God, our Savior walked through judgment's door, so that we might walk as victors through the gates of his kingdom. Amen? Amen. Father God, we thank you that you did not spare your son, but you gave him freely as an offering for us. We are a people prone to wander, prone to live by our own set of rules and not look to your living word. Please strengthen us, in our walk, in you, may we be a faithful people, a people in love with you and who serve you and delight in you. And we ask, Lord, that you bless all of our labors this week on your behalf. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.